Welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs, welcome back. We have another repeat guest today, and you are going to be so glad that Josh Miller is here. (laughs) (laughs) If only people were so glad when I arrived (laughs) to things. (laughs) No, you know they are. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So today I want to talk about, honestly, like one of my favorite topics related to religious trauma which is high control dynamics. Uh, Josh, what like sort of comes to mind when you hear high control dynamics? Well, I think like most people, my mind immediately goes to cults and what makes a cult, Mm -hmm. since those are typically the organizations that are most closely associated with high control. So the high control dynamics that I think of are the ones that are just mostly the ones that epitomize cults. So like mm-hmm. um, standardizing language, controlling food intake, sleep deprivation, um, isolation and exclusion, things like that. Okay. Yeah. And so do you think that all high control religion counts as a cult or do all cults count as high control religions? Oh, great question. Um, I think that if you ask all of the very passionate white women with podcasts about cults, yes, every high control group. Okay, fuck you. (laughs) Your podcast isn't about cults specifically. Um, I feel attacked. (laughs) Yes. But if you're going off of like more of the academic definition and understanding of cults, no, um, not every high control group would qualify as a cult. And I do believe that there are cults out there that don't necessarily fit the qualifications of high control as well. Yeah. Well, and then I think there's the religion aspect, right? Because it's like a high control group can just be, you know, it can be like Amazon and how controlling they are of people's time off or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, if there's not that belief system aspect then it doesn't really count in terms of causing religious trauma. Well, now that brings up an interesting question that I have then, because is it a spiritual belief system or is it just a collective belief system in general? Because, you know, I've worked for a pretty well-known retailer that a lot of people call a cult because there is a very specific belief system that goes into their I guess, mission around what they're selling and why that all leadership and all employees are expected to buy into and perpetuate. I mean, I I kind of do count that as, and I think that that survivors of those kinds of groups can absolutely have pretty much all of the symptoms of religious trauma, because if there is forced conformity of thought And there are specific beliefs that you have to espouse in order to stay in the group. And there's like behavioral expectations. Mm -hmm. How is that different than high control religion? Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely agree. So then it sounds like it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be a like spiritual or mystic 
belief system, just a standardized belief system. Yes. Although I do think that when there is a spiritual and mystical aspect, that actually makes it easier for high control groups to maintain that control because there's this element of like, you can't see it. You don't know. Maybe it'll happen. And also we we can get more into this in a minute, but the like spiritual authority that a lot of religious leaders claim is something that you can't verify, but it also like really carries a lot of weight. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I guess in in a non-spiritual high control group, that authority can usually be verified. Like they're a CEO <laughs> or there's some type of managers who are, you know, so like right. the spiritual aspect of it, that authority comes from a divine or from an, an ascension and enlightenment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and then there's like cult leaders like Teal Swan, who Mm. isn't necessarily talking about a spiritual belief system, but she is claiming to have like special insights and like abilities. And that gives her that extra credibility. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue with someone who says they have access to all of the knowledge of the entire universe that ever was (laughs) and ever will be, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so one of my favorite ways to think about high control dynamics is in terms of a domestic violence model that's been used for years now. It's it's called the Duluth model, and it's the power and control wheel. Hmm. And so in therapy among like abuse survivors, the power and control wheel is a tool that we use to help people think about all the different categories in which their abuser has wielded power and control over them and sort of used that to coerce them into doing what they want or or into being trapped. And so if you think like an abusive partner is going to be doing things like insulting the victim and abusing them physically and threatening, you know, to take the kids away and things like that. Mm -hmm. Those are all power and control dynamics. So what we've done here is reframed the power and control wheel into religious trauma framework. Mm -hmm. And so there are eight different categories of the power and control wheel and I kind of want to talk through each of those and see see what uh, examples jump to mind for you. I'm going to have so many, so <laughs> many. Even as you're just talking about it, uh-huh. my mind is already going back to like various therapy sessions. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So right at the top, we're going to start with the category called coercion and threats. Hmm. So for example, if in a domestic violence situation, the abuser were to say, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. That Mm. is coercion. That's a threat that makes the victim feel like they have to stay. And so in high control religion, it's, it's less personal, but it's usually more like if you don't believe in this belief system, God will hate you and you'll go to hell. Mm -hmm. that is a serious threat yeah tell me what else comes to mind i i I mean that is kind of the foundation of evangelical christianity right is that there is a place of eternal torture and torment for anyone that does not believe 
and serve and worship. And, you know, I think that most would probably make the argument that God does not send you there, you send you there. And it's like, like, I don't want to be in a relationship with someone or something that is going to punish me if I exert any type of free will. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of effort gets put into making the coercion sound like it's actually benevolent. You know, like you're only going to go to hell if you reject God and that wouldn't be good for you and you wouldn't be happy anyway. So all you have to do to avoid torture forever is, you know, submit to this group. But other than hell, though, what other coercion or threats do you think that high control religious groups use? I think this is where it gets a little muddy for me between like coercion and threats and then actual like exclusion and isolation, because I know that's part of the wheel. Right. But it is the threat of isolation. It's the threat of losing everything and everyone Mm -hmm. and having no support. Right. Excommunication. Yeah. Knowing that if you don't adhere to this perfectly or near perfectly, or at least pretend that it's perfectly, that you will have nothing and you will suffer in other ways. Yeah. I think like getting kicked out of the group is a major source of coercion, but also evil spirits and Satan and temptation. Yes. Now, how big was spiritual warfare in your like Southern Baptist experience? I mean, I feel like I didn't have maybe the typical Southern Baptist experience with spiritual warfare because I did grow up on the mission field. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, like I probably encountered a demon at least once a year, you know, like, (laughs) or you were the demon. (laughs) I was absolutely accused of being the demon. Yeah. Multiple times. But yeah, I mean, it's just like if if you're thinking in those terms and if you have people in your religious group telling you that like anything out of the ordinary could potentially be like an evil spirit, mm-hmm. that that is a major control tactic. Oh, yeah. Everything was a gateway. Everything led to possession. Everything led to oppression. And I can't like <laughs> my family opted in. So when I was like seven or eight or nine years old, parts of my family became pretty radical in their belief. And my background with Christianity is in Assemblies of God. And that's a very spiritual side of evangelical Christianity, very mystical, very focused on signs, wonders, gifts, that type of thing. And so the emphasis on spiritual warfare was so intense Like there were so many demons cast out on a regular basis at like all of the big youth conventions, church camps and stuff like that. I mean, people, of course, are speaking in tongues, being slain in the spirit, like we talked about in my other episode and all of those big things that come with it with like the expectations and knowing that like if you strayed just a little bit, you could be the next one to be possessed and when my family opted in was right in the prime of harry potter right so like i've already read oh no no a majority of the first three books and now my parents are like hey um i don't want you reading that because it's witchcraft and it will open doors to demonic oppression in our home i'm like well jokes on you i have been reading this for years now 
You should have been like, we are many. <laughs> well, ha, jokes on you, mom. I am a witch. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So definitely the coercion and threats. I think the the like mystical and spiritual aspect really gets uh, mixed in with that one. Before we move on to the next category, I think a very interesting aspect of coercion and threats that don't really get talked about a lot because it's very, very specific to the spiritual denominations is the God told me XYZ coercion. Okay, so that one kind of is a crossover from this category to the next one, which is spiritual intimidation. Ooh, okay, perfect. Let's move on to that then, because I want to talk about that. Yes, and you're so right that that one gets used all the time. Like, I probably broke up with four different people using the God card of like, "Mm, God told me that it's just not the right time, when really, I just didn't want to date them. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, but so spiritual intimidation is this idea that I have some extra special connection with God or the divine or, you know, some sort of spiritual enlightenment or status. And that gives me an extra amount of authority to speak to what you need to do. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's still about power and control, but it's using that spiritual status. Um, And so obviously the, the easiest way to see this is with spiritual leaders who claim to have a calling mm-hmm. and and claim that the Almighty appointed them as a leader. And therefore, you need to listen to what they say. And it's a lot harder to accuse them of making mistakes or of being wrong about things because, you know, they were called by God. Yeah, absolutely. And back to your point about like breaking up with people. that. <laughs> The amount of like conversations I have overheard and had personally Mm. with people saying, God told me we're going to get married, we're going to be together, we're going to whatever that looks like is just like through the roof. And it's so bizarre to like have that type of power backing you and wield it like that and say like, I have divine authority. And I'm going to tell you right now that whether you like it or not, we're going to be together. Right. It's the Trump card. It really is the Trump card. And like literally the card that Trump also used, right? Yep. And it's it's so bizarre to me that it's very widely accepted that so many people can wield this authority with absolutely no proof that they should have that authority. Well, and this is when this category and then the one we just talked about collude with each other because it's like, I'm claiming to have spiritual authority with the spiritual intimidation. And also I'm adding in some coercion and threats of what the consequences might be if you don't do what I'm telling you to. And so Sometimes those are really, really scary and and literal, sort of like you're going to get kicked out of the group and you're going to lose your family and your friends. Or it could be like a demon is going to get you. And yeah, there's no proof of that. But that's also a really scary thought, you know, like that Mm -hmm. does carry a lot of weight. Yeah. There's a lot of times the implied consequence, right? Of like, 
oh, God is with me on this. So if you don't agree with me, you're against God. Even if they never say it, Mm -hmm. that meaning is incredibly clear and it makes it so hard to argue with it or to stand up for yourself because I don't want to stand up to God. Right. Yeah. I don't want to make Jesus cry. (laughs) (laughs) The other part of spiritual intimidation that I think we see a lot in high control religion is forbidding of questions Mm. about the group's doctrine and teachings or the group's holy book or scriptures. You know, it's sort of like, because this is of God and it's divine, you don't get to think for yourself and you don't get to deconstruct. You don't get to say, I'm, mm-hmm. I think maybe we're misinterpreting that. No, it just is what it is because it's of God. Yeah. And my experience was that we were allowed to question, but only in certain ways. And that was their way of like, getting around the like toxic theology accusations and accountability was like, no, 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 we want you to think critically. And then someone would speak out against something or bring up a quandary and they'd be like, no, 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 not, (laughs) not like that. So like, we're allowed to ask questions, but within a certain Mm -hmm. framework. And that was really challenging for someone like me, who was a little shithead and wanted to argue and debate about everything. You? (laughs) Me, You know, like it was so bizarre to me that something so big as my very existence could be up for debate, but not something as simple as whether or not women belonged in leadership. Yeah. I also think that like if you are trying to figure out if someone is using spiritual intimidation against you, a good hint that they are is if you start asking questions about something Mm. and they change the subject to being about God's authority. Yeah. That is a telltale sign. If it's like, no matter what you're asking about, it circles back around to, you've got to just trust God. That's spiritual intimidation. Let go and let God is what popped into my head. And I want to vomit. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So the next category is emotional abuse. And the way that I like to think about emotional abuse is basically just using somebody's emotions against them. So shaming someone in response to being tempted or or making a mistake, that's emotional abuse. Mm. Shaming someone or telling them to suppress who they are or suppress the feelings that they have, that's emotional abuse devaluing self-love and self-care. That's a, ooh, that's a big one. That's emotional abuse. I do think that emotional abuse is the most prevalent of all of these signs of, you know, power and control exploitation. I think that emotional abuse can be so subtle and so seemingly insignificant by the ones perpetuating it that a lot of times it flies under the radar or people don't realize that that's what is going on. Because, you know, I know that you and I talked about systemic religious abuse and how that plays out in conversion practices or the belief that someone's identity has to change. And that type of abuse is so prevalent without ever being labeled abuse that it just leads me to believe that emotional abuse is so prevalent without ever being recognized. Mm-hmm. I definitely think another form that this takes is the doctrine of depravity. 
Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of faith systems have that same message, although they call it all kinds of different things. But anytime you teach someone that you are fundamentally inadequate and incapable of being adequate on your own, that is emotional abuse. That is very interesting because that is the doctrinal foundation of Western Christianity. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) It's just, it's, you and I have had this conversation a few different times, but it's, it's hard to bring that up to people because, you know, then you get really defensive. People build their entire identity around their faith system and their beliefs. And rightly so. I mean, when you have something that means so much to you, it makes a lot of sense that you're building your worldviews and stuff around it. And then when you're confronted with the possibility that your belief system is doing harm, Mm -hmm. that's really hard to reconcile. It's hard to think about. And so many people turn away from it or they appeal to purity and say, well, that's the extremists. That's not us. That's them. But back to your question, one of the other ways that it can show up is in the villainization of very, very common, just emotional responses to things and like being told that self-esteem and confidence. For me, it was always pride. Yes. And to be fair, I was prideful on certain things, but it was a coping mechanism. I felt inherently flawed because I was taught I was inherently flawed and broken and aberrant. Yeah. And so I was desperately compensating, trying to be good at something. And so when I found something, I went all in, but I was told over and over and over again that it's arrogance. I'm like, it's funny that you think I'm arrogant when I believe that I'm garbage. Like, I don't think I am capable of doing anything well. So it's astounding to me that I'm being told that I'm, I have too much self-esteem when really it was at like a negative level. It's especially ironic when that mechanism was because of the shame that you had mm-hmm. and their solution to that was, was to shame, to shame you, <laughs> making it worse. <laughs> Double helping of shame yeah. on top of all the other shame that we'll be talking about. Yeah. But it, I mean, that impacts me still. I I still, I, I get so scared that I am not an authority on what I'm talking about, that Mm. all of the research and the study that I've done on a topic and all the personal experience I've had on a topic, it still doesn't qualify me. And that I'm still arrogant. I'm still actually doing harm. Yeah. Not to mention anytime we shame people for having other really normal emotions like anger or sadness, you know, like using people's natural emotions against them is so, it's so sneaky and rude, but also I feel like if you, if (laughs) calling it rude is so funny to me, like that's rude. Like, yeah, it very much is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I feel like this one is easy to see in the domestic violence example of like an abuser being like, you're so sensitive or you're always Mm -hmm. overreacting or like, you know, you would be nothing without me. Like those are all emotionally abusive things that we hear in, in high control religion, but just slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. Isolation is the next category. And you kind of referred to this earlier when you were talking about like cult dynamics. Yeah. 
like a, a classic cult tactic is to separate people from their families and friends who are not in the group because it makes it way easier to brainwash somebody when they don't have someone talking sense to them. Mm -hmm. And so isolation and high control religion is partially about removing access to outside supports, but also removing access to outside conflicting beliefs or, or even scientific information that might disprove what the group is teaching you. And, and a lot of times that looks like propaganda or fear mongering about outsiders and other beliefs. Hmm. Yeah. The amount of sermons that I heard that told me I was in danger for being a Christian, <laughs> just like I was so afraid. I was convinced. I was so convinced that I was going to be attacked for being a Christian and I needed to be prepared to be shot Ugh. for it and like defend the faith and stand up for it and die for it. Oh yeah. I mean, that's part of where the title of this podcast came from martyr. She wrote is that there's such a like glorification of martyrdom. And it's like the best thing you could ever do is be killed for your faith and so it it glorifies that isolation of like, you need to be separate. And if people hate you for that, then you're probably doing it right. Yeah. Like <laughs> it makes me think of DC Talk's book, Voice of the Martyrs. Oh, and then the, all of their songs about, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be hated for this. <laughs> I also think like another isolation tactic is dehumanizing outsiders. So I think if you go to a lot of high control group meetings, you'll hear them talking about non-believers with this disdain and like disgust. What's that doing other than making the members of the group not want to associate with the outsiders? Yeah. Do you feel like there was a specific demographic for you growing up that was a special that was chosen as the target? Oh, I mean obviously the gay agenda. Yep. Yeah. You know, like my parents boycotted Disney because Disney supported the gays. Oh no. If only they knew how much Disney does not support the gays. <laughs> I know. Right. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't see uh, the little mermaid until I was 20. Well, that's not my favorite one anyway. That's like the saddest thing that's ever happened oh, to me. That is everything. <laughs> that's the saddest. That's the one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> But yeah, dehumanization, though, I think other than the gays, um, <laughs> just like non-believers in general, it was kind of like it was less in a like fear mongering way. But I feel like more in a pitying like, oh, they have no meaning in their lives. Mm -hmm. They have no way of knowing what's right and wrong. They're just so deluded and confused, you know, and it was like yeah, we need to go and save them, but we don't really want to like associate too closely with them because, you know, they're lesser. Yeah. What could we have in common? <laughs> right. Don't want to be unequally yoked. Right. And I do think that it's easier to buy into the exclusion of others when you have a like, quote unquote, dangerous target. Right. Because if the gays are dangerous, if they're preying on the children, if they have an agenda besides just, you know, being alive, mm -hmm. then 
we can exclude them and then by association exclude anyone that supports them, that identifies even closely with them. And it's where that slippery slope argument really comes in handy because it's like, well, if we associate with these unbelievers, what's next? Like, what are they going to be gay? Are they going to bring their gay people around? And then what? We're going to have a big gay orgy and I can't escape. Like, what's what's (laughs) going to happen? Probably let some demons in. Many demons. And I think that's one of the, like, more insidious ways that it shows up is that type of exclusion of a specific people group or demographic. I mean, think of the whole Muslim panic and everything like that, you know, that came after Mm 9-11 that Christianity really leaned into. It's just so much easier to get other people who wouldn't normally be so exclusive to isolate and exclude if there is fear attached to it. I think it's so interesting how othering other groups solidifies the group itself, you know, like it's, it's so, it makes you feel more loyal to your group when you're all talking about those horrible other people that you hate. Yeah. I feel like it, it does two things. It villainizes the other people, but it also makes you feel like, yeah, I'm on the right team. We're the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we even see that in the gay community. I think every community kind of does that in its own way, but in the gay community, it shows up in like, still white elitism like there's a lot of racism and sexism and transphobia still rampant in my own community and it's amazing to me that it can be so prevalent in a community that is built around being excluded Mm. it's just mind-blowing to me yeah it's ironic it's ironic but I think that that's I don't know do you think that there's some type of biological aspect to tribalism that may be like playing a part in this? I think it's this desperation that we have as humans to be included and to be accepted and to belong. And a lot of times we we don't know how to belong somewhere without excluding somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like I can't feel like I'm in the in-group if there is no in-group. There has to be somebody mm-hmm. that I'm frowning at and gossiping about for me to feel like, aha, I made it. I'm I'm in the good group, you know? And so I think it's just sort of like a logical fallacy that we are born with and that we perpetuate without even thinking about the fact that like, maybe we don't need to exclude people in order to find belonging. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to the next category. Absolutely. Minimizing, denying, and blaming. This is my favorite one. <laughs> I don't think it's that big a deal. <laughs> I don't know what you're freaking out about. I don't do that. I don't do that at all. I think you do it. (laughs) I think you're just overreacting. (laughs) God. Yeah. So denial of mistreatment or denial of unintended impacts is a major way that we see this. A lot of people call that gaslighting. I'm not crazy about the word gaslighting because I think it gets used way too much. But Mm -hmm. in this specific example, it's pretty spot on. Yeah. Well, remind me what the like actual definition of gaslighting is then? So that's debatable. I actually heard that gaslighting was officially added to the Merriam-Webster dictionary this year. Um, And it's their definition was like an attempt to question another person's like sanity or, or make them question their own perception of reality. 
And, and that happens in high control religion all the time where it's like, oh, that didn't feel like a sin to you. Hmm. That sounds like something a sinful person would say, mm-hmm. or, you know, like, oh, you felt like I was harming you by condemning you and publicly humiliating you. Well, I was actually helping you. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, if you feel like I was hurting you, then that's probably something you need to work out with God. Yeah. I'm just holding you accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My school, uh, I think it was my junior year. We had a guest speaker who was talking about accountability and holding one another accountable out of love. And then what he had us do was spend a little bit in like prayer and worship or whatever. And then when everyone is just in this place of feeling whatever, super emotional and spiritualized, he had us go confront someone that we had some type of issue with the drama yes and like apologize to them or whatever but you know what it really looked like it wasn't like hey i think i've hurt you and i'm holding on to this or whatever whatever it's you hurt me i've been hanging on to it and i'm sorry but really it was just a way to shit talk someone to their face in the form of an apology (laughs) and we all did it we all did it in person, together, everyone is looking around, watching, seeing who's spilling what tea and like uh-huh. talking about it and gossiping. And it was all under the name of accountability, accountability and like apologizing to your brother or sister in Christ and being above reproach and all of that nonsense. And I had someone, someone that I really looked up to. Now, here's the deal. I did not have a lot of friends my junior or senior year. It was, well, for a variety of reasons, the first of them being what I mentioned earlier, I was kind of a little shithead. The second one being that I was at a Bible college and gay and struggling with all that. Mm. But there was this um, straight friend of mine who I really looked up to. He was a very nice, genuine person. And even though we weren't like good friends, we were on leadership teams together and we had done work together and he just always treated me with such respect Hmm. and he came to me and told Uh me that he wanted to end this not on him in that like he was doing this to be harmful like other people were he was genuine here but the impact of it was really really damaging he came to me and said that he wanted to apologize because he had been harboring these like feelings against me because he didn't really like me all of this time. He didn't really like me because I was a little too effeminate and came across (gasps) gay and it made him him uncomfortable. And he realized that's not right. I shouldn't be feeling that way. And I want to apologize to you for that. How magnanimous. Yeah. I was like, Oh, Thank you. And so in that moment with 400 students all around the chapel and him, I mean, and like he didn't like have a microphone or anything. It was like, quote unquote, in private with everyone watching. Um, (laughs) I had to just like deal with it and accept it and pretend like, oh my gosh, like, thank you 
for doing that. Like, go with God. I don't know what to you say. Should, here. You should have been like, well, I want to go ahead and preemptively apologize for harboring bitterness against you for the rest of my yeah. life for what you just said. <laughs> I want to preemptively <laughs> apologize for the punch I'm about to do to your face. And it was it was just such a like shock because again he had been so kind to my face for years only to find out that he did not like me at all for something I could not control and then I mean I confronted him but it was the leader and you know encouraging him to come and say that to you even though it was not helpful whatsoever and the leader was the one saying it was this is good yeah. this is godly and healthy and it did not feel like any of the well it felt mm. godly since godliness was kind of painful no matter what for me but it definitely did not feel healthy yeah yeah so another type of minimizing denying and blaming is the the victim blaming thing you know of like you're suffering but it's not because of the belief system that's broken or it's not because you know our group is bad it's because you're not having mm. enough faith or because you haven't sacrificed enough yeah. yet. Um, that's so gaslighty. Yeah. Um, also requiring forgiveness and reconciliation, no matter how badly somebody has been hurt. That's another. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your story is a perfect example of that. I also just from therapy, from working with religious trauma survivors, I've encountered so many women oh, yeah. who were in abusive marriages and were advised directly by their community group or by their pastor to work it out and to forgive and to submit. And could that possibly be more damaging? I mean, and what about the abuse from a God figure, even if it's not quote unquote, God himself, herself themselves, but like this mm -hmm. withholding of affection and withholding of communication yes. and relationship. And you can't even be angry to forgive, but like, right. God's testing. Yes. Your you have to like reconcile that and be like, Oh no, no, no. Like I can't be mad about it. I, I forget. Of course, there's nothing to even forgive. Like he's allowed to test me. He's allowed to take away my entire family and give me sores and lesions that I scrape off with a piece of pottery. Yeah. I always felt that icky feeling that you get when someone is minimizing or denying whenever we would sing that song called It Is Well. Ugh. Because even though I, I do kind of love that song because it's just beautiful, mm -hmm. it also is so achingly painful because it's all about no matter how much I'm suffering, I don't get to be angry and I don't get to be sad. I just have to say it as well. Yeah. Like that is so gross. Yeah. I, uh, I was dating this girl one time and I was going through my faith crisis and I was trying to talk to her about it because she had asked, you know, what's going on. And so I was telling her, like, I don't feel connected to God. I don't feel anything mm. and like i've never heard his voice i've never you know this 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 or this and she was like well i think what we have to understand is that even if we don't have any other experience even if there is nothing else 
the fact that God sent his son to die for us should be enough Mm. for us. And I broke up with her a week later because I was like, absolutely not. That does not. Did God tell you to break up with her? (laughs) (laughs) That's the only reason we would be married if she wasn't (laughs) like that. But like, that was such a big moment for me that I've held on to was I was like that, that can't, I don't want a relationship with someone that is so withholding because they did something nice for me that I never asked for before I was even born. Right. Um, I, I think spiritual bypassing often falls into this category. Mm, yeah. You know, the let go and let God stuff is that's minimizing, denying and blaming. Yeah. Okay. So we've got three more categories. The next one is definition of gender and sexuality. So this is a common tactic among groups, religious or otherwise, that's aimed at creating conformity and trapping people into pre-decided roles. And so if I can tell you you are a male and these are the expectations and these are the things that you cannot do, then you're going to be a lot more compliant and I'm going to be able to probably add more and more to the list of stuff that I expect of you. And so that happens a lot with gender, men, women, of course, there's no such thing as Mm non-binary, sexuality, as far as what's appropriate, what's not Even within the heterosexual confines, there's so many rules about what's right and what's not right and what's appropriate. Even outside of my own personal experience with being gendered and all of those things, like I think back to my home church growing up and how sexist our pastor was with even just some of his like basic sermons, like when we're talking about Leah and how like they were tricked into marriage and all of this and how the Bible like goes out of its way to say how like unattractive she is. And our pastor like focused on that and would call her like cow eyes <gasps> because that was like a translation of it. And he'd like, oh, cow eyes. And like, oh, it's so funny that like she's the less attractive of the sisters. And I'm like, this is wrong, right? Like this isn't. Yeah, that's like bullying. It is bullying. And then like talking about the definitions of what it means to be a woman and like what the woman's roles are in the house and in the bedroom specifically. There were so many sermons about the like woman's role in like pleasing the man. And oh, it was, it was equal because like the man had to be a provider of the household. He can't just expect sex without putting out in other ways, but like, it was still this like genderized version of partnership and existence and relationships and anything that was different was absolutely shamed. And there was such a fixation on hyper-masculinity. Like the men would often go to these like male retreats and come back all jacked up and be like, Oh, we're going to have our own sermons on Wednesday nights. And we're going to sing these specific worship songs and it's going to be this. And I'm like, what, what is happening here? Like, well, I don't, I don't really understand why worship is now gendered as well. Yeah. I, I definitely think there's a lot of implications for 
religion's traditional view on sexuality there too, because Mm -hmm. if gender roles are that rigid, men do this, women do this, then when you start talking about sexuality, Mm -hmm. either you're playing the role of a man or playing the role of a woman. And so I think by defining gender so rigidly, we then sort of like have backed ourselves into a corner where sexuality can only be interpreted one way without it, quote, being unnatural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because women are supposed to be submissive. And so they're the ones that need to be mm-hmm. penetrated by the man who is conquering and strong. Yeah. It's bizarre to me that something as quite literally natural as sex and sexuality has been colonized and has been like baked into this like patriarchal view Mm -hmm. of what it means to be sexual and like all of these different things. And I, at this point in my life, I can't imagine how stifling it must be to be in a faith system, whether that's Christianity or otherwise, that doesn't allow any type of healthy exploration of sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, I think that's where a lot of confusion really comes in. Like, I can't tell you how many straight men I've met that were so scared that they were gay because they liked being penetrated and they thought that that's what it meant. Yeah. And I was like, do you find me attractive? And they're like, no. I'm like, do you find any man attractive? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. Like, <laughs> And it's just, yeah. it's so stifling and suffocating. And there's so much shame that's created from it. Yeah. I think the only other thing worth mentioning in that category is restricting leadership to only Mm -hmm. people who identify and show the traits of certain genders or sexualities. And I think that's just such a sneaky way to exclude and, you know, to force people to conform because you're not going to have any power if you aren't the right way. Yeah. I took this peer counseling class in college and uh, we took several personality inventories and that type of thing. But one of them was a Christian binary gender specific personality inventory of leadership. What? Yeah. So it was like, like male Christians take this and here are all of these categories, like the hunter, the lion, and then all of the women do this one. And it's the things like, oh, she's the flower and this one's the garden and the dough and like this nonsensical. That makes me want to vomit. Yes, it was. And like, they didn't even match up. Like it was so nonsensical (laughs) and didn't even go together that I was like, so you're telling me that you want to pair a lion and a doe together and that there's no conflict (laughs) there. Like we're not supposed to view that as any type of natural. Okay. All right. Yeah. Whatever. Even Christianer would have been a lion and a lamb. I'm certain lamb was in there somewhere. (laughs) Okay. Next category is economic control. Um, A lot of like cults will literally like drain people of their savings and like require, like Scientology is a great example. They require a massive amount of donations every single year from their members. And it's, it's so normalized that if you don't do it, it's like clearly that is a spiritual issue if you're not willing to give. And we do that to 
maybe a lesser extreme in evangelicalism through the form of, you know, tithing, but even beyond monetary contributions, a lot of religious groups expect their members to donate their time, mm-hmm. their efforts, their skills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you ask for compensation or you want recognition, wow, you clearly have shown yourself to mm-hmm. be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And I think it can definitely show up in other ways too, right? Because yeah, most churches will require membership and that if you are a member, you have to tithe a certain amount. And if you don't on a regular Mm -hmm. basis, you get questioned and you can lose membership and all of that type of thing. And then there's also like pastor appreciation month and there's like love offerings for all the missionaries and there's like supporting the missionaries and all of those things. But then it can be something as simple as like, my college is a private Bible college that was one of the most expensive places that I could have gone to outside of like massive Ivy League universities. And and they wouldn't let us work certain places because if it was a secular work environment, they didn't like it. Like a friend of mine tried to work at Family Video and because <laughs> they had a back room oh where there was like porn and stuff, he couldn't work there. And he was like, nowhere else is hiring. They are the only ones to offer me a job. I can't exist without this. Um, Try being a woman. Yeah, I mean. Like so many women, even today, are strongly discouraged, if not forbidden by their churches to get jobs yeah. because their role, you know, and this kind of goes back to the gender role of your role is to be at home, but also it is a form of economic exploitation because someone without income is someone without power. Mm-hmm. You know, we've kind of talked about the exploitation form of economic control, but I do think there is another angle, which is the side that tells people not to enjoy material things, not to want material things, not to mm. save up or, you know, be careful with our money because you should have just total trust in God's provision. And that I feel like is just as toxic, even though there may not be somebody on the back and sort of profiting from that, it still forces people to be reliant on the group and reliant on the belief because they don't have the security that money brings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So last category is loss of autonomy. And we kind of have talked about this with like, you know, being separated from friends and family who are supports, but this kind of loss of autonomy, I think goes a lot deeper than just external It's like your internal sense of agency often gets undermined by these groups. So tell me what comes to mind. I guess what comes to mind is helplessness. And that's something that we worked with a lot at the crisis line is learned helplessness. Yeah. And I saw that a lot with some of my friends was that like, every decision had to be prayed about and like they couldn't act without having some type of confirmation or having some type of just 
direction from God or a spiritual leader. And it was just this complete dependence on external factors to just do their day-to-day life. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my religious trauma clients will come in and and not even like realizing that they're doing it. They're they're asking me for instructions on how to live their life, yeah. on how to do their relationships, on what decisions to make. And that's a really big challenge that we have to work through. And a lot of times I, I there's kind of this sense of betrayal when I'm like, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. They're like, well, why not? Yeah. I trusted you. What do you mean? Right. And the whole reason for that dynamic is that high control religion trains people to not trust their own reasoning, their own critical thinking, their own intuition, and to instead seek advice from an authority figure or from God. Yeah. And so that just is constantly undermining somebody's sense of autonomy and ability to make decisions. Yeah. It makes me think of Jocelyn from Bob's Burgers and how Jocelyn, yeah, how she's like always doing whatever the group wants to do. So true. And in the one episode where she's like, and I've learned that I need to make decisions for myself and I like this jacket. And then she's like, unless no one else likes it. <laughs> and then like waits for them to like <laughs> give her validation. And yes, it's so prevalent in the high control groups that do focus heavily on isolation and like exclusion, because you have mm-hmm. to be able to get like the input and the validation from the other people in your group. And if you're all thinking the same, like that's a way to validate that. Like, oh, I'm in step. Oh, I'm in line. I'm using the same language. I'm, you know, doing all of these things. Yeah. Seeking the counsel of your fellow believers. Yeah. Or I think one way that we see this show up a lot is not going to any like professionals outside of a Christian like identification whatsoever. So like Mm. only going to Christian therapists, only seeing a Christian mechanic in the church, only doing those things with other people inside the group. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And like it's helplessness. I cannot go to anyone else. I cannot get the help that I need. Yeah. Unless it's like validated through some sort of divinity. And there's so much fear, I feel like underlying that, you know, of like, what would happen if I did make a decision for myself? Yeah. I also, I think the the emphasis on submission to authority is a really big way that this one gets reinforced, you know, of just like, obedience is such a virtue in high control religion, submission, humility, people who are submissive make really compliant members. Yeah. Yeah. I think that submissiveness is also really baked into the foundations of Christianity because I think about like how many times God commanded one of his followers to do something completely outlandish and harmful. And they're like, okay. And, And how great their faith was because they did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those were the power and control factors of all the ones that we talked about. Which one do you think you like personally experienced the most of? Oh, goodness. Um, I would say probably what I mentioned earlier, emotional abuse. Mm. There is just such shame still attached to identity 
and shame attached to not being good enough or imperfect. And there's still an unrealistic standard of like emotional well-being and intelligence and recognition and all of these things. I just think that like, yeah, I, I think that that's the one I've had the most experience with, but that's been so blended in with like, you know, definition of gender and sexuality and coercion and threats and things like that. But I will say if I had to like identify the one thing that has probably affected me the most, it's been the emotional abuse aspect. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I think a lot of people probably would agree with that. Mm. I think for me, the minimizing, denying and blaming is what impacted me the most. Like my personality type is so sensitive Mm -hmm. to being invalidated just naturally. And then when you add that spiritual aspect of you shouldn't be feeling the way that you're feeling or no, 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 your perceptions are wrong. Maybe you have a sin issue like that pattern played out so many times that in a nutshell kind of describes my experience in religion. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that it's just, it's going to stay with us. <laughs> it's yeah. anyone that has had any type of experience in an organized religion is going to have takeaways, both good and bad. And usually the bad tends to just be so, so much part of our identity. Usually it usually has to do with some of the foundational yeah. aspects of who we are as people that it takes a lot to get rid of it. If ever. Yeah. I think it means a lot, though, that we can identify those things and that they're not subconscious anymore and even get to the point where we can laugh about it, you know, Mm -hmm. and recognize that, you know, when fear of being betrayed and then blamed pops into my head, I don't have to feel like terrified by that. Instead, I can just be like, oh, wait, wait, wait. That was the old way of thinking. I don't have to do that anymore. And I don't have to put up with that anymore. And so like, even if that fear is always with me, and I think it probably will be, at least I'm not forming my choices around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, I was so scared of losing everything, even though I didn't really have that much along the lines of healthy relationships I was still so scared of being alone again that I was willing to, you know, put up with not just harm to me, but harm that I was seeing being done to others and perpetuating it under the guise of it being right. And now, you know, I lost everything. <laughs> I I went through the process and lost everything and everyone and got to the scariest, darkest place possible and came out of it. And I did it, you know, without any type of organized religion. I did it without any type Mm. of divinity. And so now when I see harm being done to someone, I have nothing to fear. I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to speak up. I'm going to say something. I'm going to fight against this because what's the worst that can happen? You know, the worst had happened to me and I made it through So I don't have to be afraid of that anymore. And so that emotional abuse just has no place in my life or my immediate sphere of influence, because exactly like you said, I can recognize it now and confront it without that fear. Yeah, I think that's what I love about the power and control wheel is sort of like 
it it pulls the veil back on the manipulation tactics and helps you recognize like oh that that control tactic was working on mm-hmm. me but now that i know about it it's not going to work as well and so i love that that empowerment that comes with raising awareness yeah yeah it, <laughs> it makes me think of that story i just told you from the other day where i was um i was talking to someone and they asked if I wanted to take home something, some food items that they had brought. And I was just like, oh, no, thank you. And they were like, what do you mean? You you didn't like it? And I was- You don't like the food I made? Yeah, like oh, I, I slaved over, and you don't like it? And I just very easily was like, oh, no, it's not that. I just already have that food item at home and I don't need it. And it was just a very Mm -hmm. genuine answer. I wasn't making excuses or anything like that. And they flipped it real fast. And they were like, oh, (laughs) I'm so manipulative. And I was like, yeah, that doesn't work on me. And they said, yeah, I figured it wouldn't with someone like you. And I love that. (laughs) I love that people can recognize that now I am not someone that is going to fall prey to something like that. Yeah, you're not susceptible to that because you've thought about how controlling that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, Josh, thank you so much for stopping by. And I think we, we honestly just like barely scratched the surface of power and control and, and of high control dynamics. So I'd love to have you back again if you want. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can do a like full episode per portion of the wheel maybe and like bring in an actual expert (laughs) instead of me (laughs) as well um whatever you're able to like who what makes an expert (laughs) well (laughs) okay okay maybe I meant someone who has like clinical experience Mm. of how this might show up in other survivors as Ah, well okay gotcha yeah well Mm -hmm. I appreciate you being here are there any funny uh church culture stories that you have for us that maybe have to do with like control? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know that I can come up with like a specific funny story relating to power and control. But I will say that it makes me laugh now thinking of like young Josh at like 10 or 11 Mm -hmm. starting to mimic some of the behaviors and control dynamics that I was seeing in the church, but doing it in like (laughs) really ineffective ways to other children in like children's church. Like, gosh, I mean, try to convict them. (laughs) Yes. Like trying to like, Hey, God told me that I deserved that snack that you earned. Like, I know (laughs) that you were really good, but I feel like I've been really good and God wants you to honor me with that and they'd be like the holy spirit wants me to have a bigger part of that cookie yeah yeah like no one ever fell for that nonsense but like starting i can i mean remember like flexing some of those like manipulation tactics and seeing how to use people and like totally me too in absurd ways absurd ways that is so true and it's so funny when you just think of like religious leaders in that same term where it's like they're just flexing their manipulation muscles and maybe they're fooling themselves but that's really all they're doing 
Yeah, that's it. Cool. Well, thanks for being here. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Later. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye. Bye.